0: We'd like to welcome our first guest who's come to visit us through time this morning. This is Miss Alice May Wilkinson, or if she would have introduced herself, Mrs. John D. Wilkinson. She happens to be the great grandmother of one of our members, Laurie Lyons. We're very pleased to welcome her this morning.
1: was born in Homer, Louisiana in 1872, and I married my husband John D. Wilkinson, John Dallas Wilkinson, in 1893, and we moved to Shreveport. I was involved, as most women were, in a lot of civic and cultural activities before I became involved in any kind of political activity, and that was very, very common because that's what most women did. Um, for instance, I started in Shreveport. There was a national organization called the Parents-Teachers Association that had just started, and I started it right here in Tripport in the first school. And I also did—I started a training school for girls, and I was president of the Louisiana Federation of Women's Clubs. And we had women's clubs back then, and that was sort of our political outlet because we weren't allowed to vote and had no political power. And as things went along, we became a little dissatisfied that we weren't getting a whole lot done not having the, the, the right to vote. So, the uh, well, the northern women started long before us. In Louisiana, we started the suffrage movement in probably the, in an organized way in the late 1800s and there was a woman down in New Orleans, her name was Kate Gordon, and she was a Unitarian. She belonged to the Unitarian Church down there, and she heard the speaker about the right to vote and that they're trying to get this passed so that all women could vote, and so she became very involved and organized women around the state, particularly in New Orleans, to have this passed. Now, I was up in Shreveport, and I didn't get involved until a little bit later more around 1913. In 1913, in Shreveport, we had a parade for women's suffrage. And we had hundreds of people come out. We had over 130 men participate. We had the mayor participate in the parade. It was a wonderful success. But then when Congress did not ratify the 19th Amendment, things kind of dropped. So again, in 1918, things started churning up again and I became associated with the National Women's Party and um, I was one of the primary people here in Louisiana associated with them now there were two different two different groups on women's suffrage in Louisiana Kate Gordon's group wanted to have the right to vote for women as a state's right only under Louisiana constitution she didn't want a federal right My group wanted, whether it's federal or state, we just wanted the right to vote. And the reason that she and a lot of people in the South did not want it to be a federal right is because, you see, after the Civil War was passed and there was no more slavery, they also gave the Negro the right to vote. And they started participating a lot more in our local affairs than we really liked. Now, we had, by 1918, kind of figured out how to eliminate the black vote by poll taxes and tests and a lot of things that made it where it was more the the white wealthy people, and we kind of liked it that way, and if it was a federal right, they may come down here and change the way we did our voting so that 's why a lot of people did not want a federal constitutional right because it 'd be too much impingement on our state rights of how we like to have things voted on and um, anyway in 1918 there was a big they the louisiana legislature voted to have have it on uh, a referendum for the state for a constitutional amendment in louisiana and kate ja- uh, gordon down in new orleans and and myself and other women up here we fought hard and we had pamphlets and we had information and um, uh, our main strategy was to go for men prominent men's endorsements and yeah, all the time we would have these newspaper ads saying another prominent man that had endorsed the right to vote for women and um the first president of uh, uh, the uh, the first person man to to endorse was the president of the shreveport board of health and he said the giving of the franchise to women will double the brains that solve the questions necessary for the prosperity and happiness of our people. And the next one said, since we unhesitatingly trust woman's judgment in the rearing of our offspring, we should not doubt her ability to intelligently cast a ballot. Well, we were thrilled. We got the Louisiana <laughs> State Senator, we got the district attorney, the sheriff, the mayor. We had all kinds of people supporting my husband. He happened to endorse, too. Um, In our literature, we pointed out that there were, according to the 1910 census, there were 22 million educated women in the United States. So, of course, we were able to make an intelligent vote. And the other thing, the other tactic, of course, that was used in the South was women should be given the vote because the way it's stated now... The Negro man had more political power than the white woman, and we really don't like that at all. So anyway, in 1918, it was a statewide vote. We worked really hard, and they worked hard, but we didn't work with their group because they were down in New Orleans because they were just kind of weird. So anyway, the, the, in, in Shreveport, this was the vote, 1,537 for suffrage, 313 against. We were thrilled. And we had one of the biggest turnouts we'd ever had. It was the New Orleans votes that defeated it. It was the political machine down there. The unions didn't want it. The temperance, the, the, the liquor industry did not want women to have the right to vote. So we were discouraged. So then the federal Congress finally passed it, and it came down to Louisiana for us to ratify it. I continued to fight very hard for the right to vote, but Kate Gordon did not, and that's because of she did not want it to be a federal law a right. It did lose in Louisiana. Fortunately, there were enough states, Tennessee being the last one, and the right to vote passed in nineteen twenty, and we got the benefit of that even though we didn't get to we didn't vote for it. In fact, Louisiana did not ratify the nineteenth amendment until nineteen seventy. Now, after the suffrage movement, there was still a lot of work to be done. There was voter education. We had to teach the women how to to register and the poll tax. And uh, I became the state chairman of the National Women's Party. That was the one with Alice Paul. Now, Alice, there were a couple of groups in the national level. One group kept trying to work with the men in power, saying, you know Ladies, we are going to get that vote passed. We are going to have the right to vote for women. And they kept patting them on the back. Alice Paul said, that's not enough. We've got to do more than that. So she and her group chained themselves to the fence at the White House in Washington, D.C., and they were arrested. And she went on a hunger strike, and they force-fed her every day. Um, And these women suffered intolerable conditions while they were in jail. If you ever have the opportunity to see Ironjawed Ladies, I think that's what it is. Iron-jawed angels. angels. Ironjawed Angels, then please do, because it shows the full story on it. But anyway, I did help to change many laws in Louisiana that discriminated against women. And I was a member of the 1921 Louisiana Constitutional Convention, and they gave me this pen. It has my initials in 1921. It's a gold fountain pen the kind that you stick in the ink and draw up which i'm sure all of you probably have (laughs) and this is a picture of me in 1924 i think it was in washington dc and i'm with several other ladies from across the nation and alice paul is in white after the service come forward and look because it's a wonderful picture of everybody and um We are having one of our National Women's Party, the delegation meeting. So anyway, the work has never stopped. I didn't die until 1956, and there was still a lot to do. But I thank you for inviting me here.
0: Thank you. Our first guest this morning comes to us from 16th century Poland. Would you please welcome Katarzyna Wiglowa?
2: Thank you, young lady. Good morning. My name is Katarzyna Wiglowa. You may know me, if you know me at all, by the German pronunciation of my name, Catherine Weigel, or perhaps by the incorrect pronunciation of my name, Catherine Vogel. That person is something called a supermodel. I was born Katarina Zelazowska in 1459 and lived the entirety of my life in the city of Krakow, Poland. I was of common birth and I was married to a man named Milkior Orweigel a merchant and councilman in our town, so I was neither noble nor peasant. I praise God now that my beloved husband had gone on ahead of me to heaven before the worst of my troubles began. In Poland, in my time, the Catholic Church was very powerful. It was not the state church, but it held great influence on the state, and particularly in the district of Krakow, where Polish royalty was also headquarters at this time. So there weren't very many heresy trials and burnings in Poland as in other parts of Europe. The Queen at the time, Bona Svorza, was apparently feeling pressured by the church. And the church in turn was feeling pressured by the growing presence of Protestants throughout the country. And by this need they felt to control the Jewish population. I was not Jewish, I've been Catholic all my life, but when I was 70, The Bishop of Krakow accused me of confessing heresy because I would not sign documents condemning the errors of Judaism. I couldn't do it according to my own reading of the scriptures because I saw no such errors. God was one. Jesus was a wise human prophet of God. That made sense to me. Near the end of my life in 1538, 39, the Polish same in Parliament hosted religious debates, and I went before them to argue my position based on my reading. This was not well received, to say the least, and I was charged with apostasy of renouncing the Catholic faith. On April 19, 1539, after 10 years in prison, I, a frail, white-haired woman of 80, was led out into the market square of Krakow, tied to a stake, and burned alive an 80-year-old woman, frail from 10 years of prison, burned alive at the stake for the sake of an idea. Today I am remembered as a martyr by both Jews and Unitarians. I, I did not know this word Unitarian, but from the grave I know that I would stand with you all, all people who confess the unity of God and the worth and dignity of all humanity. To the end, to the very end, I spoke my truth. I remembered the words of Socrates, neither in this life or the next can anything evil befall your soul of one who stands loyal to the truth as one is given to know it. And I say to you, speak your truth always as you are given to know it. God willing, you won't have to die for it, but you may honor those who did by resolving to live by it. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you, Katarzyna. You honor us. We'll move quite a bit forward in time now to 19th century America and welcome the Reverend Olympia Brown.
3: Good morning. I am the Reverend Olympia Brown. All my life I tried to open doors for women because I had to kick down quite a few of them myself. I'm a universalist minister and the first woman who was ordained with the support of a denomination. Not the first ordained woman, that was Antoinette Brown, a Congregationalist and no relation, but she too is a part of my story and I'll tell you more about her. I come from strong people. I was born in Michigan on January 5th, 1835 the eldest of four children of Universalist pioneers from Vermont, Asa and Lefia Brown. Determined to give us all a good education, my father built a schoolhouse on our farm and took us around the countryside, asking for money to hire us as a teacher. Then I wanted to go to college. By then, there was one college that is now known as the first college for women in the United States, but I went there and discovered really it was just a seminary. My chemistry professor told me, you really don't need to know this. You just need to be able to sound smart when you use it in conversation. So I went to Antioch College, and where it was also not such a rigid Calvinist school, and it was where the great educator Horace Mann was president. I did so well there that my entire family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, so that all four of us could go. At Antioch, I had the opportunity to hear the other Reverend Brown, Antoinette Brown. It was the first time I'd heard a woman preach, and the sense of victory lifted me up. I felt as though the kingdom of heaven were at hand. Next, I wanted to go to a universalist theological school. That was the logical next step. Because throughout my life, I remained true to this faith that teaches us brotherly love and opens up to the seeker such a world of usefulness and the beauty of holiness. An idealistic young woman that I was, I truly believed that freedom of religious thought and a liberal church would lay the groundwork for all other freedoms. Of course... I would meet a little disappointment with my idealism. First, I applied to the Unitarian School of Meadville, Pennsylvania, but the trustees said, a woman student? That is too big of an experiment for us. So next I tried the liberal college Oberlin, and they did say I could come, but they said I could not participate in the exercises. Remember, I wanted to learn to be a preacher. So then I tried the St. Lawrence the Divinity School, Universalist Divinity School, at St. Lawrence University in New York. Ebenezer Fisher, the president, said, Well, I really don't think that women are called to be, to call to be in the ministry, but that is between you and the great head of the church." Well, of course it is, and so of course that means I should go. He and I already worked it out. But when I arrived, the president actually thought what he told me was a discouragement, and they did not expect me there. And, of course, my challenges were just beginning. When I gave my sermons in class, some of the male students would stand outside the window And they would mimic my sermons in high falsetto voices because apparently I had a soft and high-pitched voice that they said would not suit me to the ministry. But I graduated in 1863 and like every other obstacle that came my way, I worked through it. I enrolled in speech school, and for the rest of my life, I did exercises to improve my lung capacity, and I became a great speaker. (laughs) For years, it seemed I was always convincing somebody of something. In 1864, I was called to parish ministry in Weymouth Landing, Massachusetts, and I began working in the women's rights movement with Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and other leaders. Because by this time I had been ordained, but I had struggled to be called to to minister a church. In the summer of 1867, though, my parish gave me a four-month leave of absence to go and work to pass a suffrage amendment in Kansas. During this time, while making all my own logistical arrangements, because Susan B. Anthony's husband was supposed to set that up and he did not, Um, I made over 300 speeches, often dealing with brutal weather and hostile townspeople, and sadly the measure did not pass, but Susan B. Anthony still thought that my work was groundbreaking. By 1870, I accepted a call to the Universalist Church in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was a larger church, but with a complacent and sagging spirit. Now, of course, You know that any church that would be given to a woman preacher would have some kind of problems, but the greater the challenge, the greater the reward, I always thought. And in Bridgeport, I met my husband, John Henry Willis, a man so entirely in sympathy with my work that I knew marriage would not interfere with it and rather assist in my endeavors. I could have married no better man. And like my friend Lucy Stone, I kept my maiden name. We had a son and daughter, Henry and Gwendolyn. Well, during my maternity leave for Henry, a small faction at the church started agitating to fire me, even calling in other ministers to tell the congregation, what you need here is a good man. By the end of 1874, I did get tired of it, and I resigned. We stayed in Bridgeport two more years, and I had my daughter there. But again, I felt the call, and I found a universalist church in Racine, Wisconsin, in need of a minister. When I wrote to the clerk of the society to offer my services, he wrote back that the parish was in an unfortunate condition, thanks to a series of pastors who were easygoing, unpractical, and some even spiritually unworthy. They left the church adrift, in debt, hopeless, and doubtful whether any pastor could rouse them again. Exactly my kind of challenge. (laughs) I'm happy to say I not only revived the Racine Church, I established it as a cultural center and brought in such famous speakers as Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Julia Ward Howe, and my friend Susan B. Anthony. At age 53, I left a healthy congregation that remains today as the Olympia Brown Unitarian Universalist Church to work full-time for suffrage. In 1919, I was one of the few of the original suffragists who, were actually, who lived long enough to actually be able to cast a vote in a presidential election. I was 85 years old. Indeed, for me, as I told the Racine congregation when I was invited back to preach, the grandest thing has been lifting up of the gates and the opening of the doors to the women of America, giving liberty to 27 million women, thus opening to them a new and larger life and a higher ideal. In the latter years of my life, I spent summers in Racine and winters in Baltimore with my daughter. I died peacefully in Baltimore at the age of 91, and according to the Baltimore Sun, in that last decade of my life, I was still able to, quote, arouse discomfort among conservatively minded Baltimoreans. like the sound of that. To honor the centennial of my ordination in 1963, the theological school at St. Lawrence University unveiled a plaque which reads in part, preacher of universalism, pioneer and champion of women's citizenship rights, forerunner of the new era, the flame of her spirit still burns today, and I hope that it does. In a time when so many hard-won freedoms and opportunities seem once again in danger, I hope that all of you, men, women, and children, will harness that flame within to do the work of seeking freedom and equality for all. And may God bless you in your endeavors.
0: Our final visitor this morning is from 1960s United States, Viola Liuzzo.
4: Good morning. My name is Viola Liuzzo. I'm here to tell you my story. I was born in 1925 in Pennsylvania. My father was a coal miner, my mother was a teacher. He lost his hand in a mining accident, and things didn't turn out so well from there for us. We lived in the South, mostly in Tennessee, also in Georgia, and as I was growing up in the South, I saw segregation. I saw what was happening, and I saw how people were being treated, and I didn't like it. We were poor. Our lives were bad, but our lives were still better than other people that I saw. I dropped out of high school after a year. I was smart. I liked to learn, but school didn't really work for me. My family moved north to Detroit when I was about 17, and I thought this was going to be terrific. But what I found in Detroit was, if anything, more segregation than I left behind in the South. But I found good things in Detroit, too. I married a man named George, had two wonderful girls, and I met my friend Sarah. Sarah Evans and I were were the the same kind of troublemaker. I wasn't interested in the things that the housewives of Detroit were interested in. Um, I was interested in change, in making things different, and so was Sarah. The people of Detroit, my housewife friends, thought it was odd that I was so close to my friend Sarah, who was black, but as far as I was concerned, that wasn't the important part. Sarah said, you don't see things the way other people do, Viola, and I guess she was right. I told her, we're going to change the world. People are going to remember us. Sarah was my friend, and that continued. George and I, not so much. But after George and I divorced, I met Jim. I met Jim Liuza, who was the love of my life. He didn't always agree with me. He didn't always understand me, but he supported me, and he encouraged me to do what I had to do. We attended the Catholic Church. That was important for him, um, and we had two more children. And then we had our son, Joseph. Um, Joseph only lived a few hours, but the priest came to the hospital and baptized him in those few hours, and, and we buried him, and we moved on. And then I got pregnant again, and I lost that baby on the way to the hospital. And when the priest told me that my baby would never go to heaven, I was done with the Catholics. I was pretty sure before then that their beliefs didn't really line up with mine, but that was the end of it for me. And I kept searching, and I found the first Unitarian Church of Detroit, and that was a much more appropriate home for me. i have been reading Thoreau to my kids since they were little, so I fit right in with the Unitarians. And I went back to school. I decided to become a nurse. I decided I could do something practical to make the world a better place. And with Sarah's encouragement, I joined the NAACP. And I had my daughter, Sally. She was our youngest. So life was continuing on, as life does, until March seventh, 1965, Bloody Sunday. And the images I saw on television that night of the marchers on the bridge in Selma being beaten, being kicked with the tear gas. It was It was horrifying. I couldn't couldn't imagine such a thing. And when Reverend Reeve was killed a few days later, um, that was a shock to people, but especially to Unitarians. I attended a memorial service for him in Detroit, and about a week and a half later, I was at a rally at Wayne State University where I attended school, and I got so sick of everybody just talking. All they were doing was talking, and I wanted to do something, and so I did. I thought, I have a station wagon, and I have some nursing skills. I'm going, I'm going to Selma. And I called my husband, wasn't happy but like I said he supported me and I told Sarah I told her to explain it to the kids and she said do you know what you're getting into and I told her I did I don't know maybe I did maybe I didn't but I went to Selma and I was there, and I was there for a week, and I got to make a difference. I drove people around. when The march, the, the march all the way from Selma to Montgomery, that four-day march. I, I walked across the bridge at the beginning. I set up first aid kit tents at the end to help people who, who, needed, who needed first aid after the walk. I walked the last bit barefoot. It was, it, was, it was what I'd been wanting. I was doing something. I was making a difference. I called my family that night, told them it had been wonderful, told them I'd be heading back home the next day. My husband told me to be careful. And I kind of blew off his concerns. So that night, I was driving a last few people back, back to Selma, um, some to the airport, some to bus stations, some to hotels. Um, we weren't popular in Selma, in and around Selma at the time, as you can imagine. Um, nobody was happy to see us. And there were, there were cars that would come up behind us too close, um, cars that would come up behind us too fast. And it was scary. But I made the last drop-off, and I was taking one last young man home. Leroy and I were going. That was the last thing I was going to do. And a car came up behind us and started running into the back of the car. And I think that's when I realized maybe just how serious this was going to be or could potentially be. And I thought about my kids. But we sang spirituals. At the top of our lungs, we sang spirituals. And we sang them until the car pulled up next to us, and one of the four men pulled out a gun and shot me in the head. Car went off the road, crashed into a fence. Leroy was knocked unconscious, which was good for him, because they thought he'd died, and they didn't kill him. So I didn't get to go home. I didn't get to see my kids again. My son Tony remembers Dr. King shaking his hand, saying, someday you'll understand. My daughter Sally remembers rocks being thrown at her when she walked home. People shouting at her, telling her that her mother was a nigger lover. And I wasn't there. I wasn't there for my kids. And in the aftermath, there was good. I mean, it took, it took the death of white civil rights activists to really galvanize the nation, but it did. James Reeb's death and my death, they did. And when, uh, when President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, I believe that was in part due to what I did. But there was bad, too. <laughs> because in that car, the four Klansmen in the car, one of them was an FBI informant. And so in an effort to be sure that the Bureau wasn't implicated, J. Edgar Hoover himself produced thousands, literally thousands of pages of documentation, most of it entirely false, about me, claiming that I had gone down south to uh, to Selma, where I shouldn't shouldn't have been, I didn't belong, I should have been at home with my family, looking for a party, the implication being that it had been drugs and sex that 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 was calling me down there. None of this was substantiated by anything else. Um, And yet, the Bureau not only developed this information, but accidentally leaked it in an effort to smear my name. And it was pretty successful, because I'm a martyr of your denomination, I died for a cause you believe in. But if you're honest, I bet most of you didn't know my name. So I guess the question is, was it worth it? And I don't know. I didn't die for nothing. Change happened, and I died for something I believed in, but my kids, and my legacy. Your world is better, I think, better. I don't know if it's good enough, but I know I've done all I can.
0: Thank you, Viola. Thank you, all of them did a wonderful job. (laughs) As we've listened this morning to the prophetic voices of our movement and to the prophetic voice from the history of women of our own community, we're reminded of the work that has continued and the work that remains ours to do. Women have brought their strength, their courage, their music, their leadership, their fire of commitment, and their very blood to this movement and to the making of a better world. And we see today so many instances where we stand to lose all the gains so hard won by men and women. As we approached the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, I heard Congressman John Lewis saying in an interview, I left blood on that bridge in Selma for voting rights. Our own James Reeb and Viola Liuzzo, as she just said, left their blood in the streets and highways of Alabama as well. If you go to Selma today, there is a monument to the martyrs. There is a monument to MLK and on the on the monument also, I was just there in June, um, the names of Viola Liuzzo and also um, James Reeb are on that monument along with Jimmy Lee Jackson and um, other people who died as martyrs of the movement. So they are, the memory slowly is coming back, but it is something that we need to consciously work to keep alive. Um, And today we see that very voting rights legislation gutted precisely because it was working. That's why it was gutted. And today we see that very, and here on the eve of Women's Equality Day, at the same time that we're closer to full marriage equality on the one hand than we've ever been, we see reproductive rights stripped away by draconian restrictions on access. And at the same time that we see the potential for health care coverage for so many more of our citizens, So many mothers and children, the working poor who are falling through the ever-widening cracks in the social safety net, we see a governor who would blithely turn down that opportunity for the sake of energizing the base. And religious freedom, which we take so much more for granted than poor Katarzyna, we look at shocking encroachment on that ideal in the form of those who would seek to impose a certain kind of religion, a certain story in the classroom of a public school in the guise of science. If we are not personally tied to a stake by such actions, our last hope of true scientific advancement and leadership certainly is. And we need to do what we can to rescue that. We all have a voice in all of these issues because of these courageous people who came before. And we owe our own strong voices and our best efforts to those who come afterward.